the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, my name is Richard Moore. I'm with Lionel Burney. Hello, Richard. And Daniel Freib. Hello, Richard. And we are in the middle of an argument about Adam Yates' uh, marathon performance <laughs> in Barcelona at the weekend. So just thought we'd, uh, we'd, we'd, we'd start start with that. <laughs> but are we are we in the middle of an argument about it? You were asking yeah, if he'd done it in his cycling shoes, which suggests that you weren't that impressed with his time. <laughs> Well, well I'm a terrible should... judge of running times, but Daniel's our running expert. I mean, no, I wouldn't say expert, like, what but would you we expect should. Him we to do should it? Well, should we explain what we're talking about? Yes. Adam Yates ran, competed, ran in the Barcelona Marathon a few days ago, and his time. Well, he he broke the the mythical for for amateur runners at least three hour barrier. Um, two hours, 58 minutes and something and change. I presume this, he was in me, fancy dress. What, what was he? A panda? And no, he wasn't in giraffe? fancy dress. He was, wearing, he was, he was wearing some very fancy shoes, uh, Nike, I think there was zoom fly shoes or um, vapor fly shoes, which have anyone who's followed running over the past three or four years, um, will be aware of this controversy about the, sh- the Nike, initially Nike, but other brands have brought out similar products now, which are said to confer unfair advantages, um, you know, possibly, possibly allow people to gain two or three minutes over the course of a marathon, which, you know, might explain how he was able to get under three hours. But I think it's pretty impressive, particularly because he said he'd been on the beach for the previous um, couple of weeks, shades of... Alberto, Alberto Contador. Contador. And the 2008 Giro d'Italia. Contador, um, at that time, what had happened? Um, Astana called him up at the last minute. There was some, it was controversy to do with the team. Well, his team well, he wasn't allowed to ride the tour, was he? From the tour. Yeah. So they because, sent him. Uh, because of his association with the team, not yeah. because of anything to do with Contador at that stage. And they called him up. They took the last minute decision. Johan Brunier was the director at the time to call him up for the Giro. He went on to win the Giro and he was memorably nicknamed by his one of his rivals for victory in that Giro d'Italia, Riccardo Rico. He was nicknamed Il Bagnino, the, the lifeguard. <laughs> I would say that winning the Giro uh, from the beach is more impressive than breaking three hours in the marathon. It's a perfectly respectable time, but some of the reaction I saw to it was a, to it was a bit over the top because it was it was an it's an okay time, but for an elite athlete like Adam Yates, I would put it in the firmly in the in the average category. The the spectrum, the sweep of of marathon performances by. Well, more often they're retired riders um, has been quite interesting over the years. I think the record, I think I'm right in saying the record, unofficial record by a former rider is still held by Abraham Alano, who ran two hours 35 um, shortly after he retired. The controversial Lance Armstrong's done a few marathons, um, two hours 47, I think is his best time. But Alano surprised me because he was quite a... A chunky, well, he was a GC rider, but he's quite a chunky sort of guy compared to Adam Yates, certainly. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, look, listen, hats off to Adam Yates for, for running the Barcelona Marathon and uh, 
Lionel, you look like you're poised you to said, say something. Did he do it in fancy dress? Maybe, did he do it in his Ineos Grenadiers outfit? No. 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 No, he didn't. That would have okay, been ridiculous. So he wasn't in fancy dress then. Okay. No, um, listen, what have we got coming up in today's episode? Um, we are still, we're, how, for how many weeks are we going to be looking ahead to the Giro? How many... How, how many weeks are they going to draw out the presentation of, of the route? Uh, we'll be looking at the latest stages uh, announced, trying to make sense of the presentation, in, if in nothing preparation, else. In preparation for this week's episode, Rich, I was just casting my eye over some former uh, route presentation, route presentations of yore, and I reminded myself, I was reminded that Back, you know, in the 70s, 60s and 70s, the route would be would be presented in sort of late March. Well, if that had been the case, if this was happening at late March, they probably wouldn't have got it done in time for the actual Grande Partenza, would they? It's taken so I think long. Still, there are still questions about whether that will be the case this time around. Um, it, it is the off-season, so we're going to be turning our attention like a to treasure a couple hunt. of... <laughs> we're going to be uh, speaking to a, a friend of the podcast who, on listening to a, a Friends of the Podcast episode, um, got in touch with a professional team, a World Tour team, and ended up getting a job with the team. It's quite a remarkable story. Tony Moffa, we'll hear from him later on. And we're going to, um, my show and tell this week is a, a, a series, a reality series that's been on GCN recently. So that's something a bit different too. Uh, we should also trail what's coming up on the Cycling Podcast over the next couple of months. Uh, we're going to be reviewing the season starting in a couple of weeks um, with a, a series of episodes uh, looking back on the 2021 season. Um, and uh, we'll give you a bit more information about those perhaps next week. And then over Christmas, we are going to be delivering a selection box of episodes for Friends of the Podcast. Um, you can still sign up as a friend of the podcast at the frozen price of £15 until December the 1st. That will gain you an, a year's access to our Friends Archive and lots of episodes coming up for Friends of the Podcast over the next few weeks. So stay tuned for that. But before any of that, Lionel, do you have a news roundup for us, please? I do. A brief one this week, Rich. It's cross-season, track-season and silly-season, isn't it, uh, at this time of year? So I'm relieved to think that this time next week we'll have uh, well we'll we'll be at the Ghent Six for a day, won't we? So next week's episode will come from the Ghent Six with Richard and I, and then as you say, uh, we'll have our our offbeat review of the year over a number of episodes. Um, but the racing, the European Cyclocross Championships were held in Durenthe in the Netherlands, and Lars van der Haar won the men's elite race for the home nation. His first crossway race win for a couple of years. Uh, he reeled in Quinton Hermans of Belgium over the second half of the race, uh, caught and passed him with a couple of laps to go. And a uh, really interesting course, actually. I don't know whether you saw it, but it's um, it's 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 a sort of cycle circuit with a, an asphalt climb, which they've called the Col du Vam, which uh, is 15%. It's gradient. And it's built on an old rubbish dump, a landfill site. Uh, so basically a sort of man-made obstacle with a road climb in it and uh, obviously off-road. Uh, the women's race was won by Lucinda Brand, almost a minute ahead of Hungary's Kata Blanca Vas. And Great Britain's Zoe Baxted, who won the Women's World Road Race Championship for juniors a couple of months ago. She's won the junior cyclocross European title. She's also won three junior European titles on the track in Appledon earlier this year. So multi-talented Zoe Baxted, whose parents, of course, Magnus Baxted, 
the former Paris-Roubaix winner, and Megan Hughes, an elite rider for Great Britain as well. As for the track, well, we're looking ahead to the Ghent Six, which is sort of oldie-worldie track cycling, isn't it? But uh, the Champions League of track cycling kicked off in Mallorca at the weekend. Um, I must admit, I didn't see any of this, chaps, because I was at my village fireworks display, uh, which I can report was was very entertaining uh, <laughs> and perhaps a little scary for a three-year-old, but uh, there we are. Um, but basically, it's split into uh, the four different disciplines, men's and women's sprint and endurance categories, and uh, over a whole evening of racing, uh, Katie Archibald and Corbin Strong are leading the endurance standings after the first round, and Harry Leverson and Emma Heinzer are leading the sprint categories, and the next rounds are in London early in December. Did you see any of that, chat? Yes, and I, I spoke also to Chris Hoy and Orla Shinoui, who were there presenting the show for Eurosport after it. And I think they felt it had had gone well, but lacked uh, star quality or big names in the endurance events. Um, Katie Archibald obviously is uh, is a big name on the the women's side, but on the men's side, it did lack a bit there. Um, And Who would be a big name in the the endurance? Well, I mean, even, I say even, but somebody like Michael Morkov, you know, somebody who's, 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 obviously Olympic gold medalist now, but but well-known, a recognisable figure. Um, and the six-day races do attract those kinds of riders. There are lots of kind of star names led by Mark Cavendish at the Ghent Six next week. Um, it was suggested that, um, you know, there is still a, a suspicion that a lot of the racing in races like the Ghent Six is controlled, Um and the racing at this new Champions League is not controlled in inverted commas. It's real. It's real racing, and that might be a factor. Um, but I have to say, the presentation of it was excellent. It looked really good. I know James Pope, who was involved in the the Revolution series for many years, was involved in this too, and it had some of the the hallmarks of that series where, where the presentation was excellent. It looked great. Um, it was condensed, it was fast moving, and it was quite easy to understand, which is another thing that track racing has sometimes struggled with, including six-day racing, uh, where it can be quite difficult really to know what's going on at times. Here it was very, very straightforward. And for a, a new audience or an existing, an old audience, um, quite easy to follow. So I think it's got potential, but there is still a bit of work to do. I'm hoping to be at uh, one of the London rounds at the start of next month, so I'll maybe report back then. Um, I said track season, cross season and silly season. I suppose this is a firmly silly season story, isn't it? Sergio Iguita, currently of EF, uh, was photographed on a Bora Hansgrohe specialised bike at uh, an event in Colombia, the Giro de Rigo, and uh, where he's joining Bora Hansgrohe next year, riding his new bike, six weeks early. Uh, Lawson Craddock, also of EF, uh, was riding a giant at a Mellow Johnny's event in Texas. Those events obviously have a link to Lance Armstrong and his bike shop, don't they? Uh, Craddock is joining Bike Exchange and they're riding giants next year. And well, this is well, this is not really allowed, is it? Uh, according to the professional contracts that the riders sign, the contracts run until December the 31st. And there's usually someone who falls foul of the, the rules by wearing the new kit 
too early or in this case riding the bikes too early but ef were initially rather heavy-handed in their response they threatened to terminate igita and craddock's contracts with immediate effect but seem to be rowing back on that i mean is this all a bit of a storm in a team cup i i tweeted a picture of stephen roach in his uh peugeot shorts when he rode for carrera they rode bataglin bikes and it wasn't just roach the whole team rode peugeot um Shorts, Peugeot being a French bike manufacturer who had sponsored his previous team. And he had, I think, agreed to, I uh, agreed a contract with Peugeot and then, and then reneged on it. And the, in the, in the, the rancor that followed from that, it, the, the compromise reach was that Carrera would ride with Peugeot on their shorts, which was always absolutely bizarre. I tweeted that and Jonathan Vauters um, replied with a, a Simpsons gif saying, excellent idea or something. So, Watch out for Bora Hansgrohe in, in Cannondale shorts next year. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but, I mean, it is ridiculous, isn't it, in a way? It's funny how that turned, that video of Igita and Danny Martinez, because when it was first unleashed on the internet, the reaction was almost... It was it was a brilliant sort of demonstration of profession, world tour professionals climbing uh, and just going past a lot of amateur riders as if, as if they were standing still. And it was... Uh, something that that wowed people for about 24 hours before so people noticed that the bike he was on was not a cannondale and then it all turned a little bit sour um i wonder i mean, I mean it, I, sorry i was just going to say i mean in terms of the, the kit i can understand where your trade kit up to the end of your contract but you know a bedding in period getting used to your new bike before january the first is i i don't think is out of order and i just wondered whether it was a case of the old you know all news is good news and get a bit of exposure for because all of the bike brands get a mention don't they i mean i don't know maybe well, it's, maybe it's, i'm being a bit cynical there it's well known isn't it that riders are fitted for their new bikes their new team bikes and often given new team bikes and in some cases other equipment um at usually now there's a training camp most teams hold a training camp get together after the tour of lombardy and you know the couple of days where they get fitted for new equipment and given new equipment and they start to use it i mean it is farcical as you say rich and it it, it didn't well it, it raises question again of whether contracts really should run up to possibly first of november would be a good day or around 20th of october is more or less when the actual season finishes i mean i found myself wondering whether you know if higita needed medical care or um, some other one of the other kind of services that are uh, within the remit of or the, the responsibilities that within the remit of a current employer um, who he would go to I, I think that if he had an issue that was um, possibly going to impact his performance or his training over the next few months, he would be he would be consulting Bora's medical staff and not EF Education First. I think the issue here, though, was that this this was a sort of organised event, wasn't it? And and it was almost a team event in a way, given that it was his teammates' uh, sportive. Um, so it was a bit silly of him to ride the new team bike at an event. I think out training. Privately, same goes for Lawson Craddock. Really, to to do it at a public event when everybody's going around with mobile phones, a little well, bit we, silly. We presume we presume that he does still have his EF Education bike, his Cannondale bike, because that that's not a given either. I guess if if EF Education took this action or made this statement in the first place, it would it would kind of presuppose that he does he could have ridden because I think the wording of the what a UCI standard contract states that if they have the if the team makes a 
you know, sponsored equipment available to them, they have to use it. But there are cases where, or there are teams who take bikes and other equipment away um, at the end of the season. Yeah, that's that's the, the important distinction I missed there, Rich. They were actual events rather than just out training. But maybe Igita and Craddock should have taken a leaf out of Adam Yates's book and done the events with no bike at all and just some springy running yeah. shoes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sticking with EF, uh, Richard, you, it was mentioned, well, you mentioned it in the Cycling Podcast Feminine, but it is big news because EF is to co-sponsor the women's Tibco Silicon Valley Bank team next year and they are uh, aiming to step up to the World Tour and the women's riders are going to be paid at least the equivalent of the men's World Tour minimum wage next season, I've seen. Um, a bit of transfer news that concerns one of our young audio diarists. Red Waters is joining the Ribble Welltight team along with both or two of the Tanfields, Charlie and Harry, for next season. And what else? Well, the you mentioned controlled racing, the Giro Criterium in Dubai. What um, are you suggesting, uh, not Lionel? Often, not often you see Peter Sagan uh, pushed quite so close in a sprint finish by Egan Bernal, but there we go. Maybe Bernal's going to be mixing it in a bunch of sprints next season on that form. And finally, um, well, hopefully some improving news about Filippo Pozzato, who, Richard, you spent a fair bit of time with in Veneto recently. It was... Uh, his first year organising that week of racing, including the gravel race, uh, which featured in the episode of Explore. But last week we learned that he, having not uh, opted to take the COVID vaccine, had been in hospital with COVID and in not a great way. But it does appear that uh, the reports are saying that he is improving. Is that right? I believe so. Daniel can probably tell us a bit more about that. But he... he it wasn't should should clarify he hadn't opted not to take the vaccine he delayed it so he was going to be getting the vaccine after these races um partly because he considered himself uh physically too strong to 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 be bothered by covid which was obviously a, a mistake um and i mean the symptoms for him came on 5 days after that you know those races and as you say i had spent time with him and um you know, there were lots of people there, obviously, so it seems logical to assume that he would have contracted it over that weekend, which is pretty alarming. And uh, we obviously wish him all the best. But do you know any of the latest details on his recovery, Daniel? Well, he's improving and he's turned into a bit of a, a poster boy for vaccination. Uh, he's done a lot of interviews in the last few days and including interviews with Italian TV networks in which he's he's forcefully recommended that the people who haven't been vaccinated as he hadn't um, go ahead and do it but the latest news from a couple of days ago was that he was finally up and about the doctors had allowed him to take a shower for the first time in a few days which is great news because Potsato usually showers 12 times a day <laughs> well um, when I saw him back on Instagram a couple of days ago I was reassured that he was on the road to recovery Anything else in the world of cycling news, Daniel, that's caught your eye this week? Well, a couple of interesting stories on a broadly similar topic, Lionel, that caught my eye over the last 24 hours or so. Um, one, Arno Demar, the Group Arm FDJ sprinter, has, has released, and not really an autobiography, I think it's more of a sort of chronicle of his last year um, in the the peloton and you know not not particularly successful 
um, 2021 season for him, certainly not as successful as his 2020 season. But the the passage in the book that has caught everyone's eye, and the book only came out yesterday, but there's already been a lot of coverage in the French press, particularly, um, there's a passage about, well, sort of cycling, two-speed cycling, cyclisme à deux vitesses. Um, he's sort of insinuating that there are certain teams, riders benefiting from or using substances, not necessarily illegal substances, but things like um, ketones that are giving them an, well, whether you could call it an unfair advantage, but certainly some kind of an advantage. And um, Demar has, has very helpfully sort of signposted where this is, in the book because he's, he's he's talked about this infamous page 212 where there's a particular passage where he talks about you know riders losing three kilos or more very suddenly um he talks also about how in his eyes and and in the eyes of some of his teammates i think and, and colleagues the speed in the peloton has just gone up abruptly over the last year or so and, well, we know there's a bit of a, a clash of cultures in terms of, well, ketones in particular. A few weeks ago, the UCI announced that they well, they were advising teams and riders to no longer use ketones, which are still legal. They're still allowed, but the UCI said that teams should cease to use them while um, more studies were done and, and their role and effect on the body was investigated further. But we, we've also heard that... Um, some of the teams that, that have used them over the past few years, um, non-MPCC teams will continue to do so. That's what they've said. Um, and on a, a similar note, there was a story this morning, uh, a young Danish rider, Ludwig Anton Wacker, who's a, um, a member of Sunweb's development team uh, um, and well, what, what later became DSM's development team. He is retiring at the age of 20 and he has said one of the main reasons if not the uh, main reason for this was what he believes is the excessive medicalization of professional cycling and um riders relying on legal i think he, he's pretty um he's pretty explicit about the fact that these illegal treatments he's talking about relying on pills various types of pills and medic medication whether it be sleeping pills or or caffeine tablets or painkillers and and riders doing these or using these substances quite i suppose brazenly in in races you know taking pills in the middle of races and and pills rattling around in people's pockets this kind of thing um and he yeah has said that he doesn't want any part of this and um and hence is retiring so yeah as i say two stories that will invite um, a bit of reflection on precisely that subject, the medicalization of professional cycling, which, of course, is is a phenomenon um, that we've known about for decades. Um, previously, we were talking more about illegal doping, and the needle seems to have shifted slightly more towards legal, but still controversial and, um, and I suppose, sort of, disputed enhancement and the mpcc teams don't use ketones do they um so you can you can look at that and uh you know by by looking at which teams are not part of the mpcc uh, you know i think given that they're not banned and if a team hasn't said publicly that they don't take them then we maybe should assume that they 
They do, um, because as you say, Daniel, I think they're pretty commonly and, and widely used, but also, as you also say, not banned. Can I add one more bit of news to this week's roundup, which is um, just just come out now, but Mauro Schmidt, the young uh, Swiss rider, has signed for the Koenig Quickstep for two years. Now, that's interesting to me because just the other day I was looking at him um, because uh, I wasn't aware of where he might be going, and he was under contract. He's one of these rare riders under contract for next year to uh, Quebec, next hash. Um, so you know a lot of their riders have already gone and um, but but not many of them were contracted to next year he was and that is perhaps an ominous sign well there have been a few ominous signs but that's perhaps one of the, the more ominous signs about that team's future and Doug Ryder's chances of keeping the team going so Mara Schmidt winner of the stage in Montalcino this year at the Giro of course the Strada Bianca stage 21 years old and he's off to the Koenig Quickstep well, on with the podcast in part one, we will talk about the 2022 Giro d'Italia route, which has basically been unveiled in a sort of wacky racist style. I've completely lost track. Um, I think my takeaway is that they should do the stages in the order that they've revealed them now that I've seen how they've they've done this. But uh, hopefully Daniel... A lot of transfers. <laughs> hopefully Daniel can uh, help us make sense of it in part two. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Super Sapiens are title sponsor to the Cycling Podcast and we are grateful to them for their support. A number of the world's top teams and riders have been using Super Sapiens to monitor their blood glucose and to help them better understand and manage their fueling. Let's hear now from one of them, Alexis Ryan of Canyon Shram. First started using Super Sapiens last year when they came on as a sponsor of the team. My first impressions of it were it just reaffirmed what I kind of knew about my body when it came to energy consumption during training um, and before training. But then started to ex experiment with it a little bit more. It was quite interesting to see, for instance, how traveling and jet lag affected my body and affected my blood sugar. So that was a pretty eye-opening experience when you travel across the world. And there's a lot of research around the gut being an important aspect of your circadian rhythm. The more I experimented with Super Sapiens, I realized that if I got onto a nutrition plan or like a food meal plan more quickly after traveling over, I reestablished my circadian rhythm more quickly. And I learned that through using Super Sapiens and the biosensor. So Daniel, can you make sense of the 2022 Giro d'Italia for us, please? Well, Richard, not really. Um, so much so that I created my own ad hoc route presentation well for your benefit you really are angling it's, it was starting off as a joke <laughs> but you really are angling to become the next director or if not the next one then the the successor to Cassani perhaps as the Giro director that would be terrific I would love that um yes I created a, a video for you chaps just to a sort of reel just because at the time of recording so recording on Thursday morning we know all of the stages now if i'm not mistaken but we still don't have a a map um uh and we don't have what the giro calls an ultimate 
Generale, which is all of the profiles back to back, which is probably the most useful thing that RCS usually put out. But what I can see, chaps, well, we touched on it last week, and it's an exceedingly hard route, I would say, Um, particularly the what the Jira has called the medium mountain stages are incredibly hard. Um, A lot of them over 3,000 metres of climbing, and there are some others that don't look as intimidating on paper, but a lot of small, steep or short, steep climbs. So, I mean, just to recap last week, um, you asked me roughly where where the race was going. Well, we start in Hungary. um, We know about those three stages. We've talked about them last week. Then there are a couple of stages in Sicily. Um, One finishing on Mount Etna. It's a sort of different way, a hybrid of two previous ways that we've been up Etna, um, but that's a mountaintop finish. And then another stage to Messina, which will be a, a Nibali loving, but it will probably finish in a, in a sprint. Then into Calabria, there's a stage to Scalea, we've been there before. Then the first quite mountainous stage to Potenza, um, three big climbs there, so that's way down in the deep south of Italy. One stage that finishes in Napoli, that's going to be interesting. I've never really spent much time in Naples, so um, that's also quite hilly that day. Finish at Blockhouse, we've been there before. It's the same way that we went up uh, three or four years ago when Naira Quintana won. Um, Stage to Yezi in Le Marche, Reggio Emilia, which is flat, and then a couple of... Well, three hilly stages in a row, um, which is sort of typical of what I said. These medium mountain stages being pretty nasty. And then we're into the big mountains, um, into the Val d'Aosta. There's a stage to Aprica. We talked last week about the sort of decaffeinated diet Mortirolo. Um, That's that stage, the Aprica stage. So I'm going over Mortirolo, Santa Cristina climbs. And um, yeah, then uh, all sort of finishing. I mentioned that last block of, well, we always have a very hard last week. And the last week really culminates with that. Big Dolomite stage um, over the San Pellegrino, which is an absolute brute, the Pordoi. And then finally, uh, summit finish at, well, Paso Fedaia. Rich, you'll remember, we we stayed last year at the bottom of the, what was the other side of the Paso Fedaia. Um, we stayed in Canate, but just at the top of the hill from there um, is where the Jira really, well, it won't be necessarily decided because... The, there's a time trial, a 17 kilometer time trial, um, Verona to Verona the next day. But the last climbing is on the Fedaia, which is probably, well, the hardest climb in the Dolomites, or certainly one of them. So I think it's really, really difficult, really spectacular, really beautiful. Um, and it's just been ruined by, well, the presentation has been ruined um, by what has been universally decried, criticized. Um, rubbished in the Italian press this idea of of a, a sort of striptease of the Giro stages um, which really hasn't worked I guess well we talked last week about one issue being the TV rights who was going to broadcast it and uh, Giro has kind of circumvented that by doing it themselves on social media and the other reason I think they've done it is to they they think they hoped they thought spread the sort of engagement exposure over several days um, with this slow reveal. And it's just been 
a disaster, really. Um, I mean, I... I... <laughs> Was, why are you Lionel's was, laughing? Why are you was, laughing at them? Go on, the, Im, the image of it being a, a striptease, Daniel, just makes me think, you know, it's a bit like you trying to take your underpants off from underneath your trousers. That's how it's been done whilst keeping your coat on <laughs> until the very last minute. Well, well, I said, I mean, I, we, we literally, I mean, I literally had to create my own root presentation for, for my own sole benefit just to actually solidify in my head what this route looked like and what it was going to be like. Richard's got over it. He's already put on his Campagnolo casket. But you made a very good point when we were discussing this the other day, Rich, um, when the Giro suddenly announced that these are the seven sprint stages. And you said, well, no, the riders will decide which are the sprint stages. Now, there's obviously one or two that really do look like sprint stages. I, I would imagine the one to Reggio Emilia, which is the the uh, the Giro's annual billiard table stage, um, will end in a sprint. But the one to Cuneo, which has got a pretty... St- Deep climb, tough climb in the first third. Looks like breakaway territory for me, to me. But it just seems, you know, don't rob the race of its majesty and mystery at the unveiling. I mean, the the Tour de France uh, these days, Christian Prudhomme is, you know, very careful in the type of language he uses, you know, suggesting rather than stating, you know, what the route has in store. And I think that we want to maintain that sense of mystery, um, really, don't we, when we're unveiling the, the routes for the Grand Tours. But... The, we are. Yeah, the, the the experimental novelist B.S. Johnson once released a novel in a box with the chapters just in on loose pages that you, you could read it in whatever order you wanted. And and the Jira the Jira's kind of done that, hasn't it? And and that didn't really work. I mean that didn't really catch on uh in the, from the seventies, and this I don't think will catch on. No, it got me thinking, chaps, about some of the just a sort of fag packet list of some of the more notorious sort of gimmicks in major tours over the last few decades, and um, yeah, some of the, some of the ones were t- ten that I came up with: um, the Vuelta t- team time trial prologue in Malaga, Puerto Banús, I think, to Malaga in 2015. It was pretty much a crazy golf course. I mean, you can look it up on YouTube. It was sort of over bridges, you know, around windmills, um, you know, underneath mouse traps. It was absolutely ridiculous um so yeah look that up on youtube the grid start i said this was the giro's grid start moment we remember the tour de france formula one star grid start um a couple of years ago in luchon 1972 uh, the uh, forte de marmi in tuscany the giro had three stage winners in one day why? Because it had two identical time trials, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and then a combined prize for, well, the, the two the results put together, and Eddie Merckx was the combined winner. So three, I don't know if that's ever happened before, three stage winners in one day. Um, the Giro in 1968 in a place called Campione d'Italia, which is an exclave of Italy. Do you know what an exclave is, chaps? No. Um, well, it's basically an, an enclave. Uh, yeah, surrounded. That's outside of the border. Yeah, and surrounded entirely by one other country. So the Vatican is another exclave. San Marino is an, an exclave. Ah, sorry, but there's yeah. one in in Swiss, well, surrounded by Switzerland called Campione d'Italia. And in 1968, the Giro started there. There was two laps of a 2.8 kilometer course and 13 heats of 10 riders um, at night in the dark. And yeah, and, and they still just took their time at the finish line, um, and it was 
well, they might as well just have done a normal prologue. There was there was something similar in the tour, wasn't the during um, Lionel in nineteen eighty eight? The preface, not the prologue. The preface is that right? Yeah, there was a preface where it was basically a team time trial for a few kilometres, and then basically that set up a flying one kilometre for one member of each team. So in the case of the Carrera team, who we were talking about earlier, Guido Bontempi was the rider who. Uh, covered the final kilometre on his own from their team and he was actually the quickest over the kilometre so he got to uh, wear the yellow jersey on the opening official stage but there's some debate about that stage whether it really counts Um, it's always been called a preface rather than a prologue Um, not something that's been repeated in a similar vein, the same year in the 1998 Vuelta, sorry 1988 Vuelta which of course would have taken place before the preface in the Tour de France, because the Welter at that time took place in April. There was something similar, um, five heats, each two riders per team with the team leaders appearing in the final heat. That was in, it was, took place over 17 kilometres in Tenerife. Um, I mentioned, I've mentioned in the podcast before, Vincenzo Torriani, the, who actually was responsible for quite a few of these gimmicks. Um, in the 60s, he wanted to do a Giro with stage finishes, and what starts and finishes in ports, solely in port cities, and he wanted the whole race caravan to sleep on cruise ships. Um, he couldn't get it done, though, so that's a bit of a, a faux um, gimmick that never came to pass. Sounds and, like the sort uh, of thing that Chiro would do if he was the race yes, organiser. Yes, well, watch this space, um, maybe in the coming years. The, the Gran Fondo d'Italia, another... Um, Torriani idea in 1979 Vincenzo Torriani had this idea that the competitors in the Giro and particularly the top 10 on general classification should the day after the Giro finished in Milan embark on a 670 kilometer um, Gran Fondo so no stoppages, no stages. It was a one, 670 kilometers, um, finishing in Rome. And as I said, the, the top 10 on general classification, they were going to be obliged to take part in this. And midway through the actual Giro, they sort of protested, they kicked off. And that was, that sort of stipulation was dropped. But the Gran Fondo d'Italia did take place in 1979. So the Giro finished on a Wednesday and... Um, on the Thursday, some of the Giro riders set off on this Gran Fondo to Rome, 670 kilometres. They took 18 hours, 49 minutes. So 35 kilometres now, huh? not too bad. And the winner was Sergio Santimaria. Um, and I think the last one I had on my list was the start in Israel, which I thought was a pretty harebrained idea at the time. But you chaps went and... Um, I suppose it was was successful by some estimates. Conventional racing, though, wasn't it? It was conventional racing. You mentioned the Giro that could have been visiting ports all the way around. I mean, there's quite a few big cities on the route this year, which seems a little bit um, unusual or out of step with recent years. It makes me think of this is the Giro d'Italia of Serie A because it goes to Napoli, Parma, Genoa, which is the home of Sampdoria and Genoa, of course. Turin, the home of Juventus and Torino, and finishes in Verona. So um, it's a a sort of a footballing Giro d'Italia also, which appeals to me anyway. It's hard to tell um, 
Daniel, because I couldn't see a scale on the map, but the, the final time Tron Verona, we had a final time Tron Verona a couple of years ago when Richard Carapaz was the winner of the Giro. Does it have a significant climb in it? Um, it it's hard to tell. It does. The, the, the Torricelle climb, which is a famous climb in that area, it was the sort of centerpiece of the World Championship road race in 1999, 2004 as well, both won by Oscar Freire. So that... That could be, uh, it, it could be quite an interesting final stage, perhaps. Yes, it could. I mean, the, the big question, I suppose, is who is going to take part? Because we don't know too much, really, about the, the team's plans. Do you think, do you think riders year? will boycott it on the basis of not having enjoyed the presentation? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It'd be nice to see them take that stand, wouldn't it? A strange, strange old hill to die on that, isn't it? I mean, you know, maybe, maybe the riders could um, protest next year by turning up in sort of skinny jeans and pointy shoes and jackets with sort of patchwork on the sleeves and motifs on the legs. Why, why did you decide to ride the tour, Egan? I really enjoyed the presentation. I thought Prudhomme did a fantastic job. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour at the Tour de France, interrupting this week's episode to remind us to tell you that it's sponsored by CAM, the number one mental wellness app to give you the tools that improve the way you feel. I've been using CAM myself, particularly when travelling. I listen to their soundscapes at night, the deep ocean waves, rain crashing against the window, the sound of being in an airplane or on a train, whatever turns you on or rather off. I also like their sleep stories, particularly the ones featuring train journeys. But more recently, I've discovered their children's sleep stories, which have been very helpful as our almost five-year-old boy has been ill and struggling to sleep himself. Far better than turning the light on to read him a story, I play him a story. And who wouldn't be lulled into a state of deep calm by Daddy Pig's bedtime story or Yoni McDonnie? You'll find these in the Calm Kids part of the app, which, as I say, has proved very helpful over the last week. It isn't just sleep that Calm can help with. You can clear your head with guided daily meditations or improve your focus with Calm's curated music tracks. And if you go to calm.com slash cycle, you'll get a limited time offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programming and new content is added every week. Over 100 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds. Sleep more, stress less, live better with Calm. Go to calm.com slash cycle for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash cycle. Well, chaps, just before we move on to my show and tell, um, something caught your ear, Daniel. Today, Pogacar has given an interview to a rival podcast. Uh, Geraint Thomas's podcast. Lionel's frowning angrily at that. A rival podcast. Goodness me! Oh dear, what are we, what are we doing? What are we doing? Um, but he has given an interview. Quite an interesting move by one Tour de France favorite, arguably the favorite, to give an interview to another Tour de France contender, winner a few years ago, of course, Geraint Thomas, and to then reveal apparently reveal his weaknesses in that podcast. I, I think this is actually. A sign of great strength. <laughs> Pogacar feels pretty comfortable and secure enough to uh, give an interview to one of his rivals, where he he tries to reassure him that he is in fact beatable. What do we what do we what do we learn from this? Right, it's the ultimate flex, isn't it? It's the ultimate, you know, sort of 
park park your tank on 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 Thomas's lawn and sort of spray confetti. I mean, we should get Garrett Thomas on our podcast to tell us um, how bad his podcast is or where his podcast is perhaps weak and, and, and reassure us. Maybe that's what we'll do next. But yeah, what did you make of it, Daniel? Well, Pogacar, the, the main points that, you know, in his desperate, futile efforts to to reassure Thomas that he was actually beatable, he said that, you know, uh, long climbs could be a bit of a weakness, that his power tends to, to diminish slightly um, on longer climbs. And he cited, where well, he gave a couple of pieces of evidence for this, I think, uh, Mont Ventoux this year where he was dropped by Jonas Vingegaard. And of course, the Col de la Loz in 2020, where he was also where he was dropped by Superman, Lopez and Primoz Roglic. But I think it's clutching, it's, Pog is clutching at straws, really, isn't he? Um, you know, in presenting his case about how he is beatable at the, the Tour de France. But, you know, I, I just said there, we don't know who is going to be doing the Giro d'Italia um, and who's going to be doing, doing the Tour de France. And, you know, this question really applies mainly to teams that have multiple options. And, you know, we always look at Ineos' squad and think that they have different cars that they might play. I mean, if I was Pog, I, I was thinking about, I thought about this a, a bit recently. Um, if you were Pog, would you rather be going up against Egan Bernal or Richard Carapaz? Um, Carapaz, of course, was the rider that Ineos sent to try to beat him this year at the Tour and it didn't work. And most people would say, well, Bernal is a step above and, you know, we haven't seen Bernal against Pogacar at their, at their best yet and Bernal may even be, you know, a match for Pogacar. But there's something about Carapaz. I just think, you know, in sport, it's 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 a massively frustrating when you come up against someone who is who has Carapaz's grit and who has his never-say-die attitude and I get that with Carapaz. I sense that. I mean, he's kind of, I mean, I was a bit of a sort of fancy down footballer, um, not very pragmatic. And I would sort of, you know, do lots of pirouettes and Cruyff turns. But, and it used to frustrate me endlessly when there was what I perceived to be a, an inferior defender who just would not let you go. And you would have to, you'd have to, you'd end up putting your foot on the ball and saying, can you just not? piss off mate um and, and mm. i feel and i feel like that about carapaz and even the interviews that bernal has given recently you know he talks a lot about wanting to enjoy himself and that being his only goal and and to me that speaks to a, di a fundamental difference between him and carapaz that um, carapaz like a like a, a, a little terrier yes nipping at your ankles and i would and, not enjoy and, and, even if i was physically bernal's, superior bernal's like a beautiful labrador isn't he yeah um, a greyhound I mean, I'm not a, not a dog, yeah, or a greyhound. Yeah, I'm not a, really a dog person. That's a, those are the comparisons. Meanwhile, speaking of animals, the pe the peacock of St. Albans has changed outfits while, we, oh. while we've been recording. He's wearing a Palermo. <laughs> what okay. are you doing? Well, I just thought you, you put your Campagnolo casket on, so I, I dug out the uh, the old Juventus pink away shirt with the uh, the tricolor shield on the chest and Del Piero 10 on the back. Um <laughs> Wearing that in us in in my my Giro d'Italia de Calcio, um, well, homage. get that in yeah. your in your bag for the 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 Giro next uh, week. But you you you're, next year rather, you raise a, a valid um, point about about um, about Bernal and uh, and Carapaz. I would not like there, to race against Carapaz personally. No, 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 no. 
Um, should we move? We have to uh, move on because Lionel's Lionel's moving on himself. But we have uh, we've got our new show and tell feature. Um, mine this week is a, a series, a reality series on GCN from World Tour to Cat Four. Um, Tom Southam and Simon Richardson present this series. Tom is the the World Tour director who is tasked with coaching or director sportifing seven riders, picking five eventually to ride a, a Cat 4 road race and try and ride it as a team. And I, I casually switched this program on and really find myself quite enjoying it. Um, and I, I, it was, well, we'll hear from Tom Southam in a moment about what he got out of it. But um, I don't know, I know you watched it, Daniel. Um, I, I, I just found it quite an interesting uh, way of understanding road racing a bit more almost for for Tom Southern to go from working with professionals in a world tour team to trying to get this group of amateur riders to think about the sport in a completely different way because this is not something that as an amateur you have to do right as a team and actually it's not something that a lot of professionals have had to do when they turn professional and I spoke to Tom a bit about that and I thought his answer was quite interesting that some of the challenges he faced with these amateur riders are the same as some of the challenges he faces with professional riders. So there were quite interesting parallels there, but it did for me just again, highlight um, how the sport at the professional level is, is, is a completely different proposition to what it is at amateur level. Yeah. And without giving too many spoilers, Rich, I mean, it's, it's very much about how, a collective can be or can hopefully be moulded um, in this case to sort of elevate and, and and give an opportunity to someone who, well, to a, a group who are not necessarily that that experienced and, you know, it can hopefully, hopefully lead them to victory in a race, but actually almost sort of it negates that point to a certain extent because what you really see at the end is that there isn't at that level anyway there's no real substitute for sort of strength and um and that's what wins through in the end but it is um it's a really entertaining watch and i think you know we just talked about people being cagey then pogacar but i think on on the part of all of the participants i think there's almost a, a caginess from them about how much they're enjoying it and i think they i mean they say they're enjoying it but i think they were they were having the the time of their life i mean it was a fantastic opportunity for them and i think they it's obvious how absorbed by it they they are and just i suppose how absorbing uh, cycling can be f- for anyone really and some of the 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 riders featured are quite new to the sport and um yeah it's quite it's quite inf- uh, sort of refreshing and um or stimulating i suppose to 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 watch someone on that journey of of you know not having experienced much racing before and re- and it really becoming um a, a big part of their of their thinking and their routine and i suppose you know even though they're middle-aged men they're kind of aspirations um they, they, in, in a period of their life yeah they picked their ride as well it's an interesting bunch of characters uh with all different skills and personalities and the personalities do come through very well there's one rider in particular who is is just a great team player. I don't want to spoil it, and uh, that comes comes across in the program. But it's well worth a watch. It's over two episodes, and uh, 
it's uh, yeah, highly recommended. Let's hear what Tom Southam, who is obviously a star of the show, um, had to say about his experience doing it. What does it take to cross the finish line first? Natural talent, training, or teamwork and tactics? We are going to find out, putting together seven keen local riders with little to no racing experience to make a team. A team that will train and race under the watchful eye of World Tour Director Sportif Tom Southern. He'd just come back from the Giro, hadn't he? So he's like rubbing shoulders with some of these lean, like proper cyclists, and then he's just got these like weekend warriors. Keep it going hard from here, fellas. Let's pick it up. 50Ks an hour. Okay, let's hold it up. It was really challenging, I have to say. I mean, so so I worked on it with Sire. There's also um, Harry Downing, who's recently started work with UCN. He, he came up with the project and brought it to me and said, oh, we're going to do this kind of thing, and it'll be you and Sire. And I was like, cool, this sounds like loads of fun. It'll be great. And then when I actually thought about the nuts and bolts of, like, trying to get these guys to do it, it was, um, yeah, it, it was a little bit. Because, you know, it puts you in a position where it's like, um can you really make a difference for these guys? And, you know, it, it, I was going back to a world that I haven't been a part of for so long. Um, and I basically understood by the end of it that like, when I watched the race, I was like, oh, of course it's going to go down like this. And, you know, the strongest guys are going to be the strongest guys. Um, mm. It's sort of more honest, isn't it, in a way, than than professional racing with teams. You know, that that those there's only so much you can do with your guys working together as a team, but that that's what you were trying to do and, and to really change the way that they thought about riding and racing. It was about, you know, helping each other. And it was really fascinating how some bought into that and some perhaps not so much. Do you encounter that even at professional level that, that there's a huge, because a lot of riders turn pro having only really ridden as individuals. I mean, can that be quite a challenge, even at that level, getting riders to really change their mindset and, and, and ride genuinely as, as a team and ride for other people rather than just looking out for themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think that was kind of what I wanted to bring to it because like, whether they win the race or not, I felt like if, if they really want to see what it's like to be a professional, that's kind of what it is. It's like, it's like doing all your training and going to a race and having someone say, oh, by the way, you're working for this guy. I mean, obviously the huge difference is that these guys weren't getting paid, but you always have that fight. Um, you know, in, in any team, you're always kind of, not, not so much fight, that's the wrong word, but you're always trying to push things to make everybody support one person, which is, it, it's a real balancing act. It's always difficult, even amongst guys who know their jobs and who, you know, have a clear heads up before they go to a race as to what their role is going to be, you know, one week out, two weeks out. People have always got ambition, you know, mm. um, and you, you never want to put that out because that would be the worst possible thing you can do. Yet you have to keep the flame going in people. But by the same token, you have to get everyone into line as well. So that's kind of what I was trying to, I don't know, get those guys to see a little bit. I think they did. And I mean, I wondered if you learned anything from working with them that you could take back into the day job. I mean, I mean, one of the things that I think some people's character is just like predisposed to that sort of role or, or, or being a part of a team. Some people enjoy it more than others. Um, that's there. That's there at that level. And that's there at our level. Um, and it's characters are the same, whether whether you're a fourth cat or mm a world tour rider a person's a person 
Um, and it, it, was, it was quite really refreshing for me to see that and see how, you know, even without egos and bus and this, that or the other, like the characters, the characters um, at, at every level. Yeah, I mean, somebody like Andy, uh, you know, you can imagine yeah. him fitting into any team and being that rider, that that um, Christian Keniz or whoever, you know, yeah. the guy. <laughs> he reminded me a bit of a, a big Andy Schleck um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. physically. Um, but you could see his willingness to, to do that job. And that must be something that you look for in the majority of, of pros, I guess, because very few of them have got the talent to win. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that sort of loyalty, you know, he, he, his character was just super loyal, like straight away. And in the race, he did a fantastic job. And look, you look amongst riders and you get those odd kind of pros that not standouts that are kind of like that. You're like, oh, wow, this guy's, you know, going to be special at this. You know, Tom Scully's a similar sort of guy, um, totally trustworthy, totally dependable. And if you, if, if you say to him, look after this guy until this point, you just you can put a blindfold on and know that he's going to do it. You just got trust in it. Um, super, super nice to work with guys like that. So Tom, you're going to make series two, are you? Um, you're looking for, looking for candidates, uh, interested in a 48 year old and uh, living in the North of France. Go back to the uh, Prutor days. Oh, I don't know about that. Um, (laughs) but, but are you looking to, to make another series? Funnily enough, we were discussing this over a pint last night. Um, I was having my ear um, chewed about it. So, uh, yeah, m- m- maybe it will go on. Um, certainly, with a, if, if things go ahead, it will be a lot more challenging for these guys. Um, and I think that would be kind of cool. I think, you know, they all really enjoyed it in the end. And mm. I, it, it would be cool if we did. It, it was good fun great bunch of guys and I, like I, I hope they got some sort of momentum from it i'd be very surprised if they didn't learn something about themselves from it i mean we, we know that bike racing sort of reveals character doesn't it and to to have but that can be quite a long process to to be sort of fast tracked like that and have your impressions of them you know um reflected back at them i i think that a few of them will, will probably have learned some pretty viable lessons. And, and as we, you, anyone knows who's ridden a bike or raced, those are lessons that you can definitely take into other, other parts of your life as well. That, that was what's so interesting about it because you know, that's what reality TV is supposed to do, isn't it? It's supposed to reveal who people really are. And bike racing is a brilliant medium for that. Yeah, I feel like obviously, like with the whole the feedback of the show, like the guys got the guys got it thrown right back to them, so they could see really quickly how they were and how they behaved. Um, and it always kind of makes you a bit nervous, you know, like w- when you're saying things and you know that someone's going to see this and then their family's going to see it. And uh, in that sense, it's it's unreal, mm. kind of the, the attention on it. Um, but I thought, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite cool. And you have to be pretty self-aware to be a, a good athlete or a good cyclist. And you have to be able to take criticism and criticize yourself. Yeah, and shout out to Rob Hatch as well, who who whose commentary yeah, really cool. really did manage to lift these twenty five man yeah. crits from you know um, no, but he, he injected a lot of sort of excitement and drama into it. I thought he did a really good job. It was really cool. I, I, when when he covered the crash, it was uh, in in the uh, main race. It was. Uh... Yeah, that was. yeah. I think Neil sat up as oi, 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 the, 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 full, the full Belgian. Yeah, it was great. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science.
Thanks very much to our longtime sponsor, Science and Sport, for their continued support of the Cycling Podcast and all our spin-off shows. We are very grateful indeed to them. And it's a time, certainly, to stock up on your sports nutrition products for winter. If you'd like 25% off, go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout, enter the discount code SISCP25. That's SISCP25 at scienceandsport.com. You may be inspired by our Explore series that we're in the middle of now. Two episodes have been released so far in November. Two more still to go. Um, You may be inspired to plan your own cycling adventure for which you will need to train, for which you will need to fuel. So now is the perfect time to get your Science and Sport products. Now we're going to hear from a friend of the podcast. Before the Vuelta this year, I sent an email, as I do every year, to our most generous friends, inviting them to submit ideas for a friend's special, an episode that they would then guest edit. A short tangent is that we did select three friends whose ideas were very similar and who are currently guest editing that episode, which should be out for friends of the podcast very soon. But back to this one friend of the podcast, Tony Moffa. He replied to say that he didn't have any ideas for a special. However, he added, I thought I'd let you and the other two amigos know something that may be of interest. I've been running a bike shop in Jersey for 12 years and always dreamed of working in the world tour and was pretty determined that someday I'd make it happen. Then I was listening to the episode A Team Apart about DSM. That was released in January this year. Some things that Ivan Speckenbrink said and some elements of the team's history and ethos really struck a chord. I decided to reach out and to my surprise, Ivan replied positively to my approach. He set up a meeting with his right-hand woman and after a few discussions and the passing of some time, I now work for Team DSM as a mechanic in the world tour and I'm living in Holland and Italy. I've been in the team three months now, but signed a one-year contract a few days ago. The people in the team are really welcoming, engaging, and generally impressive throughout. I really feel lucky to have somehow been guided by fate to this particular team and really hope it works out here. The riders are good fun to be around, which lifts the mood generally, and there are some great characters in the team. So, in part, this is a thank you to you guys as your efforts in covering the team's evolution from Sunweb to DSM was the impetus that has changed my life. Yours, Tony Moffa. Well, we had to follow up on this. So earlier this morning, I phoned Tony to find out how it had happened and how he's finding life as a world tour mechanic. I come from a technology background and uh, I used to run an IT business and then uh, sold that, that company uh, a number of years ago. And then I, I, I started a bike shop with some friends and became a, a bike mechanic. So I've been a mechanic for the last... Uh, you know, 12 years. Uh, and um, yeah, more recently, you know, moved into into pro cycling now as a result of the, um, you know, the podcast about Team DSM. I mean, I, I did have the idea to do that, uh, you know, for the last few years, but uh, the impetus kind of uh, came from, uh, you know, the, the Team Apart podcast that you guys did about um, a year ago. Well, I mean, so you listen to this podcast. I think you emailed me a few weeks ago. And you told me that it was some of the things that Ivan Speckenbrink said in particular that sort of grabbed your attention. So what happened then? I was already thinking about teams that I sort of felt an affinity to and kind of wanted to to make an approach to. Some, some teams are kind of um, less appealing um, and some are more appealing, like, like in any walk of life. Um, when I listened to, to Ivan talk about the team, I think what grabbed me was that his unwavering 
belief uh, in the process and removing the emphasis of the team on the end result so that riders and, and staff can just focus on the process itself. And that's something that sort of sings to, to me, really, because I, I'm kind of a believer in that myself, really. So I, I, I reached out to him. How, how did you do that exactly? Um, well, I mean, how, how, does um, one, I use, how does one go about, you know, getting in touch with Speck and Brink? Yeah, well, it, a lot of um, people are quite hard to get hold of. Uh, and I used LinkedIn, actually. But even on LinkedIn, a lot of people, um, you know, block access uh, to people who aren't, you know, fully paid members of the platform. So luckily, you know, Iran hadn't got around to ticking that box. Yeah. And so received, received my spam message. You know, thankfully, he did respond. And I, I think... Uh, obviously found it intriguing that um, that was my reason for, for wanting to, to join the team. And so we had a couple of, uh, you know, long chats uh, and eventually uh, I, I managed to meet them at the service course in Deventer in the Netherlands in early May and uh, spent uh, my first week uh, at the team just getting to know people and uh, getting to know, uh, you know, what they're about. People will be intrigued to know what your what your pitch was in the first place. I and mean, what did you what did you write to Speck and Brink when you contacted them? Oh well, obviously lied. I couldn't tell them the truth about who I really am. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I'm intrigued by management processes and and styles and what makes people bond and gel as a team and how you get the best out of people. And yeah, I guess some of the same kind of uh, views that that Ivan has about the team um, tick ticked a box for me really. Um, I, I'm like I said, I'm pretty pretty much a person that believes that you should really enjoy the process of getting where you're going and not put too much emphasis on on the end result. A bit like bike racing, you know, you can spend your entire winter and your spring training really hard for for one particular race, and then you know you punch your five k in and you know, it feels like you've wasted six months of preparing for something. So it's never a great strategy to 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 think just about the end the end game. But it's not something you hear so often actually these days. And uh, yeah, I think I talked a lot really about that kind of thing. And and that you have to be pretty good at time management in this role. That's something I've discovered. So so luckily, I must have struck some chords talking about uh, you know. My, my time management skills and you obviously anyone listening that knows me will probably laugh at that yeah but. you obviously impressed them in the interviews and, and you're you're obviously a, a more than competent bike mechanic because i guess that's the number one uh priority the number one thing they're they're looking at um how, how well actually just, uh, and yeah on, on that point that that's quite interesting because i actually shared the same opinion or, or perception before i joined the team but what I hadn't really appreciated and is actually really interesting about the role is that probably only 15% of it is actually being a bike mechanic. Um, and and the, the part of it that is hands-on being a bike mechanic is in comparison to people who work in, in bike shops, it's, it's very easy because it's the same bike every single time. The setup's identical. You'll never, you don't have to work with five different frame brands, you know, five different component group set products and, you know, it's all the same. So that part's pretty pretty straightforward. The things that have caught me by surprise are how much of the role are about communication in the team car. Um, you know, to give you an example, the, the, the DS is driving and the radio tour is telling you what's happening at the front of the race. And so when they call out the numbers of the riders in the breakaway, the, the driver, you know, the DS can't be writing those things down. 
and searching in the the race book to see who those numbers actually are so if you have eight guys up there you get eight numbers read out in french and if you're lucky you know a minute or so later they might do you the courtesy of reading those numbers out in english but as a you know you need to uh, be able to kind of interpret that information very fast write down the numbers of the riders and then refer to the handbook to see who they are and then of course that's when I'm giving that information to the DS who can then relay it to the riders. Fascinating. I mean, that that that's really, I guess we always think when we think about mechanics and teams, we think about mechanical competence, but that isn't perhaps the the thing that teams look for. They, they probably take that as read. If you're, you know, if you're a, a good bike mechanic, it's, it's um, th- these skills, the, the, the things that you need to be able to do to maintain the bikes and look after them. Um, yeah, are probably possessed yeah, by lots quite. and lots of people. The skills that you need in a pro team are probably possessed by fewer. Yeah, I would agree that that's definitely the case. Um, and, you know, whilst you need to be able to work efficiently and, and fast because it's very much deadline oriented, you know, if you, uh, for example, I did a stage race, Vuelta Burgos, you know, you finish a stage and there's sometimes there can be a two hour drive back to the hotel. If the stage finishes at 5 p.m., then you're at the hotel at 7 p.m. There's a target to be sat down having dinner together as a team. So, you know, if, if you, you're sitting down for, for dinner at nine o'clock, then, you know, by the time you get the bikes off the team car onto stands and start preparing for the following day, swapping chain rings, etc. So you have to work backwards and decide what your priorities are um, and then, you know, finish off what needs to be done the following morning, which then sets the, the time for, for when you, you get up and eat breakfast, etc. You mentioned Burgos. What, what other races have you done? Uh, the first race uh, I did was the uh, Hageland uh, in, in Belgium, uh, Omloop Hageland. And then the following day was Elfstenderonde. So that was kind of a double header weekend. That was my very first race weekend. Uh, Hageland's a gravel race. Uh, so that, was, that was pretty exciting. And uh, having never been in a team before, I, I was expecting to, uh, you know, just sweep the floor and, uh, you know, help load stuff and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, the more experienced mechanic would be in the car. But uh, but no, I was I was thrown straight into the car for the very first race. So that was you know really you know quite frightening, but quite exciting as well. Uh, Elfstenderonde was the race where Cavendish was uh, I think second in a photo finish to Philipson, if I remember rightly. Yes, that was the first race weekend, and then I did um, a couple of training camps in Austria, followed by Burgos, and then the Tour of Norway. You had some success in Burgos, of course, the Roman Bardet. So you've you've had you've had yeah. you've tasted tasted victory already yeah yeah that was amazing i mean i was in the car the day that uh, roman won the mountain stage and we were in the car going down the descent following the breakaway at, at the end um and yeah I, I think actually a lot of people probably didn't realize about that i don't know if it was on television i don't think so but he actually crashed on that descent or you know became separated from his bike mm. um but managed to hang on so yeah it was pretty exciting being in the car with the yeah the ds have you have you enjoyed it then? It sounds like you are enjoying it. Yeah, very much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I haven't had that much time to to think about it and reflect on it because it's been um, you know, really really full on since uh since the beginning of May and June. It's a, it's kind of strange because um, anyone that's been through this before will know that you spend all your youth looking at these guys on television and idolizing the riders and then suddenly you know you're in a team car driving that rider up a mountain uh you know or 
you know, in a lift in the hotel in Norway talking to Alexander Kristoff and, you know, you idolize people, but then soon realize actually they're just normal people and they're all just doing their jobs. And you, you've now moved to Holland. So you're, you're in, you're fully in with the team. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And we're as a side effect, really, because we had obviously no, no knowledge of the Netherlands or no, no plans uh, to, to come here. Um, I've ended up really, really enjoying it, um, you know, and trying to, to integrate and trying to learn Dutch as best I can. So every day I'm doing half an hour of learning Dutch, um, which just feels like the right thing to do. And looking forward to next year, um, would you fancy uh, your first Grand Tour next year, perhaps? Uh, yeah, it does scare me a little bit, to be honest, because it's, um, yeah, yeah, being so new to it. It's it's quite a daunting prospect, and I, and I I think uh, you know I, I've spoken a lot to the other guys about what it's like on a grand tour because I've only done a one week long stage race, and uh, yeah I think the the sort of stress levels if you like generally through the teams are always heightened at the grand tours, uh, so there's a bit of a trepidation about that. But yeah, equally uh, you know I'd be lying if I said I didn't I didn't want to do a grand tour. So yeah, hopefully they trust me enough to. Uh, to send me to my first Grand Tour next year. And, and I guess, I mean, you mentioned being daunted the first time you were in the team car. Um, you know, the, what we see of mechanics is, is when they're really under pressure and having to sprint from a, a car with wheels or, you know, to check whether any of their riders have come down in a crash or anything. I mean, when was the first time you were not not an experience you would you would have ever had in a bike shop um you know yeah when was the first time that happened and how how did you cope with it um well in the first race i had to uh, you know think uh, constantly all of the time throughout the you know four or five hours in the race where were the bikes of each rider uh, in front of you on the the rear of the headrest of the seat in front you have a a plan of the roof so you're looking at a picture of what's above you and always the team leader's bike is above the mechanic. Um, so that's something you're thinking about all the time is trying to memorize where each rider's bike is so that the minute you get the call that that guy's on the floor, you can be quickly up and out the car knowing which side to run to to get the bike. Um, actually, in Burgos was my first experience of, of a rider crashing and that was pretty strange. Um, it was Nico Dens who crashed and uh, I... You know, as uh, just just through chance, Nico had been on maybe I think the first three or four races I'd done. Uh, as quite a character, uh, quite a funny, funny kind of guy. Uh, so we kind of got to know each other a, a little bit through just being on the same races. Then he was on the training camp in Austria, and then he was the first guy who had you know a bad crash. So when I ran out to 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 assist him and and do the bike change he was still on the floor and you know seemingly a bit dazed quite a lot of blood his hand was in a really bad way uh, he took off his wedding ring and gave it to me which was covered in blood and so it was quite a traumatic experience and not something you ever think of when you watch it on television you know the cameras are quite a distance and all you see is the bike change boom the rider's gone very very quick but what you don't see is the human side and the human element was for me you know, the first time quite, quite kind of traumatic. And, uh, you know, you jump over another rider who's <laughs> screaming in agony on the floor to get to your guy and get them going again. And that's the priority. And you, you try not to think about it too much. Um, but when you get back in the car and then, you know, you settle down again, that's when it hits you. And yeah, mm. yeah, I think I'll kind of remember that one for a long time. And 
in a situation yeah. like that, are you as a mechanic though? Um, um, you know, is there a division of labour where you know it, the doctor will will look at the rider and assess him medically, and the mechanic will will just just deal with the bike? I mean, you are you mentioned the um, the human side of it. You are a human being, so and especially if you know the rider, you're going to be concerned for them. But um, I guess the job is also just to to make sure their bike is still roadworthy and 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 rideable, rather than to check that the rider's okay. Which sounds very callous, yeah, but. That- yeah, yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's a really interesting question. And it's a question I've asked each coach that I've worked with, um, because I think there is a bit of confusion around how that process really, really works. Because if if 10 guys hit the deck at the same time, you know, there's only one doctor in the car, in the race uh, medical car, mm. and he can't tend to eight guys at the same time. So uh, I found myself wondering you know, I'm the first guy that, that picks the rider up off the floor and helps him on the bike. Should I be the one that's, you know, asking him some, some questions, mm. you know, who are you? What's your name? What race are you at? And if those answers are, are fine, then I know he's probably not uh, got a, a concussion. So, yeah, I, I, um, I don't know the answer to that question. No, Cause if that's I'm a honest. big responsibility I mean, uh, as well, obviously, isn't it? Yeah, 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 it is. And I think that's something that does need to evolve. And I, you know, a lot of mechanics talk about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, I just asked the rider his name and which race he's in, and I'm doing it whilst putting him on the bike. And as long as uh, he, he gives me two correct answers, then I'm comfortable he's okay. But it does happen very, very fast, and sometimes it isn't possible. Um, they have a lot of adrenaline, and all they're thinking is, you know, they've, they've got to make up a time gap of one or two minutes to get back to the peloton. And yeah, their, their level of dedication, when you see it firsthand, again, from the human side is... It's a, it's quite astonishing, really. It's hard to believe what they go through and how crazy the sport is when you compare it to, you know, tennis players or, or footballers or, or whatever. Um, you know, for these guys to to hit the deck at 50, 60K an hour, to be tangled up with bikes, um, you know, clearly wounded and bleeding. And yet, you know, in Nico's case, for example, in that race, he was back on the front, uh, you know, the last 20K riding hard for, for Alberto trying to get a result. I hope he didn't lose his wedding ring. No, it's fine, but it's got a, a couple of little scuffs and dents in it now, <laughs> which uh, he, he needs to get resolved before she notices. But as if the responsibility of the job wasn't enough, I guess he got back in the car and <laughs> put that in a very safe place. Yeah, I, I didn't have any emery cloth in my <laughs> toolbox to uh, scuff off the edges for him, unfortunately. Well, quite a remarkable story, that. Um, Tony Moffa, friend of the podcast, um, he, like other very generous friends of the podcast was invited to submit an idea for a friend's special. Um, and instead of submitting an idea, he sent us this email telling us that he'd, he'd managed to get a job with team DSM, having listened to our episode, a team apart, um, getting in contact with Ivan Speckenbrink and, uh, yeah, an amazing journey that he's been on and is on. And I'm sure we'll keep in touch with him. So it just shows you if you listen to and are a friend of the podcast, what kind of opportunities can, fall in your path doesn't it people becoming people going from bike racing novices to you know fourth cat races people going from friends of the podcast to, to world tour team mechanics i mean you know what what's what sort of what next transformation awaits you richard in the next in the coming months and years uh, well what, what i was asking Tom, have you got planned well i was asking tom southern if they're going to be auditioning for C- series two of of 
world tour to cat for oh my god if they do a celebrity version are you cycling <laughs> celebrity uh, no i wouldn't qualify for that um but no very interesting very and very interesting to get tony's thoughts on his you know first few races in the job um when he's still so fresh to it and it's all new to him we've got lots coming up and we released already this week uh explore the latest episode of explore with mark bowman and his audio diary from gb juro it's a fantastic listen he ended up winning the race so it's a really really interesting insight into that mad event Next week, we've got um, another episode of Explore coming out with Adam Bowie, another really good episode. And uh, lots of Friends of the Podcast episodes as well, including a, a Friends special made by some of our best friends. And we've been taking part in some of the recordings for that this week. Um, but that's all for now. We better leave you. Um, Lionel, thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, chaps. To become a friend of the podcast or to sign up for our weekly newsletter, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Our theme music is by Glass Pear, and this episode was produced by Hugh Owen.